We will be continuing our study in the questions of Jesus. So we're looking at Luke chapter 6. Somebody can get me verses 41 to 45. Uh, Louis, Luke 6, Luke 6, 41 to 45. <clears throat> we, uh, Pastor Mitchell and I got kind of out of sync. He was traveling, and so uh, in November we started this study, ran through four studies on the questions of Jesus. We looked at uh, who do men say that I am, which is absolutely critical. Uh, foundational issue of the deity of Jesus Christ, coming to grips with that, uh, knowing beyond all shadow of a doubt that that's exactly who he is. Uh, uh, It's fundamental to your faith. If you have that wrong, you have everything else wrong. Uh, We looked at the question, are you hard-hearted? And uh, this is dealing with the dangers of uh, remaining in disobedience. We looked at the question, where is your faith and the ongoing need of cultivating faith, that faith uh, is not simply something you embrace at one point in your life, but it's something you have to constantly apply yourself to, and uh, then uh, the uh, cost of Christian discipleship was addressed in uh, the question, which of you builds a tower without first counting the cost? And so these are all very cutting and pertinent questions that Jesus Asks, and uh, we're going to go ahead and explore some other questions. And actually, we're only going to be touching on uh, a handful of these. It would take months and months to cover all of the questions that Jesus asked his disciples. So it's worth it's worth going on and uh, continuing your own study. It's a good it's a good train of thought uh, to develop in your own understanding. But we want to look now at uh, the question of beams and moats. Luke six forty one to forty five. Okay, so this is the parable of the moat pickers that we want to uh, take some time and think about today. The, the truly annoying element of this study is that Jesus' questions uh, have a bad way of ripping away our pretenses and uh, going right to the heart of our lives. And uh, he never seems to let us just squirm off the hook. His questions uh, hold us up to the uh, examination of God. And uh, generally we come away uh, somewhat singed by that uh, white-hot heat of God's examination. And so this text is a prime example. Jesus uses exaggeration to make a very painful point about our heart's attitudes towards one another, especially in the realm of judgmentalism and uh, the hypocrisy that we're all very, very much guilty of uh, from time to time. God is very concerned with the realm of human relationships. Uh, the whole epistle of 1 John, uh, perhaps the most foundational argument of that epistle is if you don't love your brothers, you can't say you love God, that there is a uh, desperate need for good horizontal relationships uh, if you're going to have a good vertical relationship with God. And so uh, this simply uh, is one element of that dynamic. Many of the questions that Jesus asked go right to the heart of our relationships. And so uh, we're looking at this uh, question, and uh, as you do, you get tremendous insight into human behavior. And uh, uh, the first thing that we see as we uh, think about this question is our uh, ability to overlook our own glaring deficiencies. And so I want to look at some scriptures in this realm for a little bit. Proverbs 30, verse 12. Somebody get that? Uh, Richard, Proverbs 16.2, Baker, Uh, Proverbs 26, Mike, Uh, Proverbs 12.15, 
Jake, Mark gets Proverbs 21.2. Somebody get me Psalms 36.1 and 2. Uh, Casey, uh, I need uh, Habakkuk 2.4 over here, Haywood, and then uh, our our brother from uh, Bullhead, uh, James 1.23 and 24. Okay, and so uh, one of the interesting things here in Proverbs is this constant recurring theme again and again. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There's a generation that's pure in their own eyes, but they're not washed of their filthiness. In their own eyes, they're pure, but they're still covered uh, with sin. Proverbs 16, 2. Always the man are pure in his own eyes. Let the Lord wait spirit. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God is uh, much more careful in his examination. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Most men will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So you need to mark that one down. That's uh, that's that's a uh, one that should be underlined and dog dog-eared in your Bible. As soon as you start thinking that you're right, you have entered into an arena that God calls folly. Or foolishness. Proverbs 21, 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord promises the heart. Every way is right in his own eyes. Every man thinks he's fine, but God ponders the heart. Again and again, this is, uh, this is not mere redundancy. Solomon was not inspired by the Holy Ghost to just stutter his way through Proverbs. He wasn't just repeating himself. He's driving home an elemental issue in human nature. And it's so clear and it's so obvious, uh, and yet so many times we miss it. In our nature is the need to feel good about ourselves. And it is a driving force. This is a profound need. This is one of the basic needs of human nature, is to feel good about ourselves. We are profoundly driven to self-justification. We don't live well with internal conflict We don't live well with the accusing voice of conscience. It's incredible how strong and disturbing our conscience is. And so we have two options in dealing with our conscience. It's either obey it, deal with the issue, get right, and then it won't bother us anymore. Or, and this is the option most people opt for, is rationalize. Justify our behavior come up with reasons why we're doing uh, what we do. That's why we always attempt to frame our actions in the most positive light. We always try to paint ourselves heroically. We always try to say, oh, this this has good reason. There's a good reason why I'm doing this. There's a good reason why I'm killing you. I'm saving the American gene pool from from your corruption. There's always a good reason. There's a good reason for everything we do, and, and it's always never as it appears. We're not flirting, we're just being friendly. Right? There's nothing, there's no ulterior motive here. It's just, I'm just a very friendly person. We're not lying, we're protecting someone. We're not stealing, we're taking a loan. We're, we're liberating We're not gossiping. We're supplying much-needed information. How can we pray for one another if we don't know each other's problems? We're not negligent. We're busy. We're not unfriendly. We're just very careful. We've been hurt before, and so we're very careful. We're not brutal. We're just honest. We're not materialistic. We're enjoying the fruit of our labor. We're not rebellious. We're exercising our right to our own opinion. Right? Is all of this true? We're not unethical. We're pragmatic. We just have to get the job done, whatever it takes, right? 
And so we always have a reason for what we do. And what that does is it obfuscates or completely obliterates the need to judge our actions. Well, I've got a good reason for this. And so I don't have to deal with this sin. So whenever there's a problem, we immediately begin to try to dodge the blame. And this is because no one likes to think poorly of themselves. The whole self-esteem movement of our generation has grown from this human need to feel good about ourselves. And it is not at all surprising that it was the gift of my generation to the current generation. Because my generation was the generation that said, you know what, uh, we don't need accountability, we don't need responsibility, all of the old taboos and laws and rules of society, those are just all Victorian ethics, we don't need any of that, we can just do what we want to do. And so we did. And we had free sex, and we had non-commitment, and we had uh, uh, rebellion, and we had everything that our generation entered into. And then when we started reaping what we'd sown... We couldn't just say, boy, did we blow it. So we had to come up with self-esteem. And we have molded a generation uh, uh, according to our own image and made them twice as fit for hell as we are ourselves. And now it's a generation that refuses to accept responsibility, refuses to look at the issues... Uh, it's all about spin, it's all about uh, rationalism, it's all about excuses, it's never the beam in your own eye. We have come to a place in life where we will not deal with the issue. We are a generation of beam-eyed moat pickers. Because we will point the finger immediately, but we will never deal with ourselves. You know, It's not my fault that I'm fat. It's McDonald's fault. It's not my fault that uh, I shot somebody. It's the, game ma- it's the gun maker's fault. It's never my fault. It's not my fault I'm an alcoholic. It's a genetic. It's not my fault that I'm a queer. God made me that way. And so it's a generation that refuses to look at the beam in their own eye, but is busy pointing the finger at everyone else. Psalms 36, 1 and 2. He flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity. Okay, catch the connection there, because this is is fundamental to what I'm talking about. This is a defense reaction that we all engage in. This isn't someone being ignorant of what's wrong with them. This is confronting what's wrong with you and saying, I don't like that, so I'm going to make an excuse for that. I'm going to flatter myself. I'm going to look at my iniquity and say, no, 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 that's that's not what it appears to be. And so this is, this is something every single one of us... How many of you like it when word gets back to you that someone has criticized you? Oh. I mean, you know, we're, we're instantly ready to mount our steed and charge into battle. Nobody talks to me about, where do they get off, you know? We don't stop and go, gee, I wonder if it's true. Immediately we're defending ourselves. Immediately we have to somehow paint the error of our lives uh, in a better light. And this is a fundamental human reaction to the issues of our lives uh, that are troublesome and wrong. Habakkuk 2.4. Okay, behold the proud, his soul is not right. Uh, what translation is that, New King James? Or living? or That's New King James. King James says, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. His soul which is lifted up, my soul is great. There's a problem. It's wrong. It's, it, it's not upright. And yet he says, uh, I'm fine. Okay, James 1, 23 and 24. says, the man who hears the word and doesn't respond to the conviction and the confrontation that is in that is like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets 
what he looks like, you know. We all, all us guys think that, you know, we're good-looking studs. But, you know, all it takes is one trip to the mirror and you can put an end to that myth. But, but you know, you get done with the mirror and you walk away and you go, yeah, I look, I look great. You know, I think it was Vance Havner said, uh, uh, God made one out of every 50 men handsome just to break up the monotony. And so, uh, you know, this, this is, he's, he's addressing this very issue of the confrontation of error in our souls uh, and the capacity we have for fruitless self-examination. We look at our lives and everything is just fine. We cover everything uh, that we are guilty of and we walk away satisfied uh, that all is in order. See, the imagery that Jesus uses here is is that of hauling a huge tree around uh, in the most obvious place, your eye. How can you miss it? It's in your eye. The word beam is a, it's a, uh, a cross beam in a house. We're not, we're not talking about a moat. A moat, the word for moat is dust. It's a particle. This is a beam and it's in your eye. It's in the most obvious place and you are able to look right through it. This isn't something small. It's not something you can miss. He isn't talking about Transgression that is overlooked because of our lack of sensitivity to sin. See, the truth of the matter is that that's a whole other area in our lives. Is the fact that, you know, through the years we've embraced certain attitudes, we've embraced certain actions, uh, and they've become such a part of us uh, uh, that, uh, you know, we're sinning and we're not even sensitive to it. We're thoughtless in things that we say, things that we do, little mean-spirited attitudes. Inner things of the heart, selfishness, pride, uh, the list goes on and on of things uh, that we brought into the kingdom and they were so much a part of us uh, that at, at this point we still haven't even dealt with it. And for some of us, this has gone on for years. So God is always faithful to convict. He's always faithful to say, look at this, you've got to deal with this. But we don't. We keep that beam right there in our eyes, uh, and uh, little by little, we, we, we simply desensitize uh, to the issues in our life. This is why David uh, prayed uh, for forgiveness of unknown sin. Let's have a couple other scriptures. Psalms 19, 12, and 13. Uh, Baker, let's have Job 9, 20. Somebody over here. Uh, Don, 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. Uh, uh, Louis, 1 John 1, 8 and 10. Uh, Al and Galatians 6, 3. Uh, Chad and uh, Bill get me Revelations 3, 17. See, uh, David was very much aware that, there, you know, even, even uh, though he's feeling like, you know, things are right and things are good, there are elements in his life uh, that he simply can't take for granted that he's sinless and that he's fine. Psalms 19, 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors? He says, keep me from my secret faults or my hidden faults or literally faults that I'm not even cognizant of and uh, forgive me of presumptuous sin. Sin that I do, presuming that this is not a problem, stepping into something without even realize, realizing where I'm going. He says, forgive me of this. I'm aware that this is a, 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 you know, something that I, I'm very much in danger of, something that happens all the time in life. And so forgive me for these attitudes that I'm not even aware of. Job says much the same thing in Job 9.20. I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, you also prove me perfect. If I justify myself, my own mouth will condemn me. If I say I'm perfect... Uh, It'll prove me perverse. He says, there's no way in the world that I'm going to get through the examination of God's holiness unscathed. There are too many errant issues in my heart and in my mind. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5, Paul says the same thing. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? 
I know nothing by myself. Does that mean I'm justified? I don't know anything on my account right now. I'm looking at my record. It looks clean to me. But, but does that justify me? No. God judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the time of God's judgment, when he will expose hidden things. He'll bring to light things that are in darkness. Then each man will have his praise from God. He says, you know what? It is, it is in lethally, lethally foolish to assume that you're fine with God, that everything is hunky-dory. It is lethally foolish to believe that everything's taken care of. You're right in the eyes of God. Paul says, I'm not doing anything that I know of, but that doesn't justify me. I'm not going to assume that that means I've got a free ride into heaven and everything's just fine between me and God. We understand the blood of Jesus Christ answers our sin. Thank God for that. Amen? We are so screwed up that if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, there is no way in the world we could make it. It's impossible because our natures are so deficient. Paul the Apostle said, in me there dwells no good thing. That is in my flesh. In my natural estate as a sinner, I'm so screwed up. I have to have a miracle of God's grace. And that and that alone is going to get me into heaven. And the day that I start thinking, you know what? I'm a pretty wired Christian, you know that? Man, I, you know what? They ought to make me Pope. I should be I should be the head of this fellowship. I should be out pastoring. I can't I can't understand how they send chumps like Adam Scary. Chris Olson. These guys are chumps, you know. I'm telling you, I'm I'm the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the fellowship. Just let me at him, man. I've got my act together. I'll show them holiness. I'll show them righteousness. I'll show them revival. You got this beam this big in your eye. We can start with pride. We can move on to arrogance. We move on to haughtiness. It's here. Everybody sees it except you. That's the danger of the human heart. And this is what Jesus is really talking about. You can see the great need for ongoing carefulness and humility in our own walk that all of this implies. But Jesus isn't even talking about those little hidden sins we're talking about. He's talking about the incredibly obvious ones, the ones you couldn't miss no matter how you tried, and yet you ignore them. There's enormous danger here. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. We say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we'll deal with it, if we will take the direct opposite action of what our human nature wants to do, which is cover it up. Cover it up. Don't tell a soul. Don't deal with it. Cover it up. Nobody will notice. Nobody will notice. Right? But see, God's already noticed. That's the problem. So that's our human inclination. He says, but if we confess our sin, if we'll deal with it, if we'll bring it out, if we'll expose it, lay it bare before God, then God can heal it. Then God can forgive it. Then God can work with it. But not until then. Okay? Go ahead. If we say we don't have sin, we make God a liar. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> you don't ever want to accuse God of lying. Put you on a very bad footing with Him. Okay? Galatians 6 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's that thought again of self deception. Revelation 3.17. Now, 
Now, keep in mind that that was written to the church. And he says, uh, because you say, uh, I am rich, I am uh, uh, wealthy, I have need of nothing. You are blind, you are uh, naked, you are uh, impoverished. And he counsels them to buy uh, clothes and uh, gold all from him uh, that is uh, uh, furnished in purity and in truth. And so this is written to the church. This is, this is so poignant. It's written to the believers who say, you know what? We're doing pretty good here, man. We're getting all washed up. Uh, our lives are together now. Uh, we're doing good. You know, I'm not a hippie under a bridge anymore. I got a house. Uh, I got a car. I got a family. I'm doing good. Uh, uh, you know, God has really cleaned me up. I'm, I'm a real good Christian. And uh, God is looking at him going, you're missing the point here. He says, you think you're fine, but you're miles off. And this is the danger of self-deception that comes from having beams from these issues in our lives that we allow to remain, that we will not deal with. Okay, any questions? Let's open it for thoughts, discussions. See if we've triggered anything other than conviction and misery here this morning. Mark. And that is the odd reality of the kingdom. We do end up getting rewarded for things that are his. And that's why you see the elders around the throne taking the crowns off and laying them at his feet and saying, you know what? Everything we did, we did because of you. I I thank God for this fellowship. I thank God for putting me in a place where there's stability and sanity. I thank God we don't come to church watch Pastor Mitchell cluck like a chicken. Or, or walk around in the front going... <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's loony bin stuff. Amen? But we are not God's chosen people as such. In other words, God doesn't say, the potter's house. That's because you're the potter's house, man, you are rocking dude. You are frontline Christian. Lots of folks in the potter's house that aren't even saved. Amen. And we are not inerrant. And that is why Jesus again and again and the word of God again and again says, don't go there in your thinking. Don't accommodate any thought that you've arrived or you've got, you've got a corner on truth or you, you know it all because you don't. And every step that you take has to be taken with great care and great humility. If God doesn't help us, we're dead. If God doesn't get us through, we ain't getting through. We are so dependent on the grace of God and it is so easy to lose but when you lose track of this and uh, I, I got a sermon I'm working on it, somewhere down the line I'll preach it but uh, the incredible danger of, of allowing this kind of mentality into our lives is we become Pharisees that fast and you do not want to be a Pharisee brother Well, uh, a little of both. I mean, obviously, we can take this into morbid introspection where we completely destroy ourselves. And uh, that's where you have to come back to the grace of God. That's what I mentioned earlier. Without the blood of Jesus, we are lost. But 
my fear, and I believe what Jesus is addressing in our text and what you see him address again and again, is that if we don't examine our lives, if we aren't concerned about true and deep holiness, if we settle for a superficial holiness, you know, we're not smoking anymore, we're not cussing anymore, we're married, we're not running around, that makes us holy, we have missed God and we're missing the, the uh, changing of our nature to become like God. Because we're not going, we're not going anywhere near where we need to go with this holiness stuff. And that's the problem with most Christianity. Most Christianity goes to level one when we should be at like, you know, level 800. <laughs> you know, we're just muddling around ankle deep and God says, what about this huge beam in your eye, man? Okay? And so, you know, you won't go any deeper than God's able to take you. I can tell you that. So on the other hand, uh, Mike. Yeah. Ah, that's good. And leaving tracks in the J. Johns. Smoke's dope, shacking up, leaving tracks in the J. Johns. Don't you love Christian graffiti? It's such a, it's such a contradiction. This guy who won the lottery the other day, he's tithed on his winnings. So I, I'm going to go hold up a Circle K and tithe on the, what I take home, and that'll make everything all right. And the funny thing is, everybody goes, wow, he tithed on $170 million. Well, you know, first of all, tithing on $170 million is fairly painless. <laughs> I would have been impressed had he given, you know, $100 million and, or, or $160 million, kept 10. What do you, what do you know, think of it. And, you know, you look at the guy, he's like, what, 65, 70 years old. He's not going to be able to spend 10 million bucks before he checks out. But, but you know, he tithes. He tithes. This is, what, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the enormous danger. I, I don't doubt, and it's not my position. We're going to look at that in a minute. I'm, I'm not sitting here in judgment of the guy, but, but I can see myself in that. I can see the way I can hold up my Christian merit badges and say, look, look what a good Christian I am. Gary. Well, there's a certain element of being proud of something. You know, you can be proud to be an American. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between waving a flag and living it. Right. Okay? Susan. Yeah. And in, in Romans, Paul says, yeah, God chose Israel, and then he cut them off. And so this is not, you know, this is, this is exactly what the Pharisees said to Jesus when he came. And he confronted them. And they said, wait a minute, we're the seed of Abraham. And he said, God can raise up children to Abraham from these rocks. That's no merit badge. That's no seal of God's approval or vindication of the way you live. But we, many, many times as Christians, vindicate Absolutely godless behavior. Absolutely godless behavior. We vindicate it and say, well, I'm, I'm a good Christian. Okay, I, want, I don't want to miss the other side of this story here. And so let's uh, hold those thoughts. We'll get, we'll get some more in a minute. I need some more scriptures. 2 Samuel 12, 1-9. Richard, Romans 2, 1. 
Romans 2.1, Lucas, Isaiah 65, 2-5, Rod. Uh, Mark, give me Luke 18.11. Over here, uh, Denny, give me Romans 2.21-23. Pete, get me Psalms 50, verse 20. Somebody get me 2 Corinthians 10.12, Casey. And Isaiah 29, 20, and 21, Noel. Okay. The, the, the other side of human nature that's exposed in this discussion is not only that we are incredibly light on our own sin, and we have to, by human nature, by perverse human nature, justify wrong behavior so we can live with ourselves, uh, but at the same time that this is going on, it creates an enormous incapacity for tolerance in other people. That these two issues go hand in hand. And the more that you are covering issues in your own life, the more judgmental you are of your brethren. And the more intolerant you are of their faults and their foibles, and the, the more harsh you become uh, in dealing with them. See, moat pickers take their guilt out on everyone around them. That's what a moat picker is. You sit there, and that church and those people, it's because you're a moat picker. Second Samuel 12, 1 to 9. Nathan comes to David and he begins to speak a parable that there were two men. Uh, one was rich, one was poor. One had all kinds of uh, sheep and the other had a very, very small flock. And so... <laughs> excuse me, but it's a, this guy has a very, very deep relationship with his lamb. <laughs> it's just a little too weird for me, but but you know I guess he's really trying to drive a point home, and so so uh, <laughs> and so go ahead. The rich man uh, who has everything, doesn't need anything, uh, uh, has a visitor come. And rather than take of his own wealth to provide for this visitor in hospitality, he reaches out and takes this poor man's uh, only sheep and uh, cooks that up and feeds that to the visitor. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said... As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. That's, that's kind of an extreme reaction to uh, uh, killing a, a lamb. And he will restore the lamb fourfold, which is twice the Mosaic law. Nathan said, you're the dude. You have been given everything. I gave you everything you could possibly want. You're the king over Israel. You've, you've got resources beyond the imagination. And if what I gave you isn't enough, I'd give you more. But in the midst of this, you look out your window. You see Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. You want her. You take what isn't yours. You kill Uriah. He says, you're the man. You've done this thing. Okay, and so this is, uh, this is clearly a demonstration of this human nature reaction. Here he is, he's bearing this incredible guilt of adultery and murder. It's all there, and this guy comes and tells him a story about a guy taking a lamb from somebody. Okay, contrast these two issues. I've ripped off somebody's lamb, you've murdered a guy and stole his wife. 
He did what? He stole a lamb? Kill him. He needs to die for stealing a lamb. Why? That is so extreme. It is so over the top. But that's the nature of guilt. Okay? When we're carrying our own burdens around, everybody else's problems become glaring issues. Romans 2.1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Therefore you're inexcusable, O man, uh, when you judge others because you're guilty of the same things. Isaiah 65, 2-5. I've spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walked through the way that was not good after their own thoughts. The people that provoke me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, broth of abominable things, is in their vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Okay, Isaiah runs this long list of abominations. They're eating swine's flesh. They're offering to idols. They're, uh, you know, it's one abomination after another. He says, the way they live is a stench in my nostrils. And they say, don't come near to me. I'm holier than you. Don't come near to me. I'm holier than you. So th- he's contrasting this extreme uh, position of, of being guilty of incredible sin and elevating self and, uh, and disdaining others. You're nowhere near as holy as I am. Okay? And putting other people down to promote his own self-image. Luke 18.11 Okay, God, I, the Pharisee's praying. God, I thank you. I'm not like everyone else. Can you imagine coming to God in prayer like that? Oh, God, you sure are lucky that I've come to talk to you today. Because uh, I'm the, uh, you know, I, when you made me, you broke the mold. Nobody's like me. They're just, I'm so much better than all of these people around me. And I know that I have your immediate access into your presence because of how great I am and how sick all of these other people are. These are extreme pictures, but they are so for a reason. They are in the scriptures to expose this incredible capacity and uh, proclivity in our hearts. Psalms 50, uh, no, I'm sorry, Romans 2, 21 to 23. You who teach, don't you teach yourself? You who are busy pointing out the errors of everyone else, haven't you looked at your own life? Psalms 50, verse 20. When you speak against your brethren, you slander your own mother's son. Uh, he's, uh, he's saying there's a, you are, you're doing something. You're dehumanizing people by this attitude. And this is the exact opposite of what Jesus wants to produce in us as Christians. Whereas he wants to build hearts of compassion, hearts of redemption. Uh, the problem is we got these beams in our eyes, we got these things in our lives, and they compel us not only to defend our own behavior, but to put other people down, because this, again, helps us to feel better about ourselves. You know, I may be an adulterer, but I'm not as bad as this guy. I may have this problem, but I'm not as bad as this guy. And by putting the next guy down and by talking about it, you know, it's incredible how much time Christians spend talking about each other. And saying, oh, they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that. And all that time, what you're doing is pumping yourself up. That's the only reason why we engage in that behavior. We're not benefiting anyone but ourselves, we think. By discussing everybody else's problems. And the reason why we'd feel good about that, the reason why we do it, when we know it's wrong, is because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Okay? Hold the thought. We'll get you in just a second. 2 Corinthians 10, 12.
He says, we don't, you know, it's a real dangerous way to live to start looking at everyone else and judging yourself by comparison. Because this deceives you. It causes you to twist your own perception. And you end up totally off the mark. See, we weaken our own pursuits of holiness by settling for someone else's standards. We weaken our own pursuit of holiness by comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. And we, uh, especially when we uh, settle for a lower standard than our own. See, the issue isn't what God is dealing with them about. The issue is what's God dealing with you about. But we use this as a technique of evasion so we don't have to deal with what God's dealing with us about. Okay? There's another danger in being a moat picker, and that's this incredible loss of of a redemptive heart and a redemptive nation. Listen to this description in Isaiah uh, 29. Just before we get that, somebody get me John 8, 3, 3 to 9. John 8, 3 to 9. Adam. Okay, listen to this in Isaiah 29, 20 and 21. The terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by a word. And lay a snare for him to reprove in the gate. And turn aside the just in a thing of naught. Okay, so get a, get a picture of what he's describing here. He's talking about people uh, who are watching for iniquity. They have the gift of suspicion. And they're watching for iniquity. And they will make a man an offender for a word. Did you hear what he said? Or what he didn't say? He didn't say thank you. He, he didn't say please. You know what I'm saying? For a word, we, we make, he says we bring someone uh, uh, under judgment for not. For something that's not even an issue. It is incredible. The issues that I have watched people make mountains out of. I'm not even going to go to church because uh, brother so-and-so is at that church. And you know what he did? He sold sister so-and-so a lousy car. Well, I'm sorry he sold him a lousy car, and fine, we need to deal with it, but bring it into perspective here. You know what? Bring it into perspective. The old saying is, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> right? And so, the watchers of iniquity, they're all checking you out. Making sure, making sure. Who were you talking to? What'd you say? Oh, I'll make you an offender for a word. It's a horrible way to live, this legalism. This loss of redemption. I'm not looking to redeem someone, I'm looking to destroy them. I'm not looking to redeem them, I'm looking to accuse them. That's, that's not a good way. And, and uh, Isaiah says, these people are going to be cut off. Listen to John 8, 3 and 9, and we'll open for discussion for a moment. This is a horrifying story when you think about what's actually transpiring. These men are willing to kill this woman to prove a point on Jesus. That's incredible to think of. They literally will stone her to death, brutally kill her, just to win a point on Jesus. So Jesus writes in the sand, and we don't know what he wrote, but uh, he said, any of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And they all departed uh, because Jesus had unmasked this human nature. This finger that points all the time but refuses to deal with its own issues. And this is what happens to you when you live that way, is you become a hard-hearted, unredemptive Pharisee. And your pride that you have exalted yourself in because you're so good, 
has made you inhuman. You have lost the capacity to redeem. You don't care about sinners anymore. You care about being right. And that's a bad way to live. Let's open this. Think about this for a minute. Adam. Marriage is two people in a room without windows or doors. Work it out. Okay? Lisa. Because you, you realize where it's coming from. The, the moat picker, the pointer outer, the, the issue isn't that their issues are valid. The issue is that they've got guilt and things that uh, they don't want to deal with. Mike. That's beautiful, okay? Lamech has killed a man and makes a boast in his crime and then says, if you touch me, it's going to be, you know, ten times worse than it was for anybody else. That's the insan- That's exactly the insanity that we're talking about. People who are moat pickers are incredibly defensive about their own lives. They cannot accept or receive criticism. We're out of time. Uh, ponder these things and uh, we'll talk more next week.